I'm Matthew George, and this is Digging into Deutsch, the podcast where we'll be unearthing the personal stories of the people right here at our agency. This ain't going to be something you'll see or hear on Ad Age or one of those industry emails or social posts we're pummeled with each day. On this podcast, we're going to zero in on the person versus the professional. That said, we'll try to give you a sense of how that person informs the pro, how each person's journey in life and what they're all about really makes them special as a professional. We hope you'll be surprised, we hope you'll be inspired, and we know you're going to have a few laughs along the way. So let's dig into today's episode. We all got a note, not all of us, some of us, a select group of us. Yes. Got a note last night from Joanne. First of all, I want to say I, I was a little surprised you were on the note. That is so rude. <laughs> I mean, anytime someone sends a note and says, you're the smartest or I look up, I'm always like, I'm, should I be on here? I don't know. Joanne is an executive career director here. And what she did was she sent out a note that said, I need your wisdom, basically asking for, I guess her, her daughter's going away for college. And she wants to give her, sounds like a card or something. Yeah, like a book of like advice, I think. Right, with collective wisdom. So we were solicited to offer wisdom. I sent two oh. with a bonus. The first one, actually, strangely enough, was one I heard on a podcast called On Being. It's done by this woman, Krista Tippett, who is a, first of all, she has the ultimate NPR voice. Love so it. So you got to listen just for that. Uh, but she has a uh, degree in philosophy and also one in theology. So uh, she does stuff about spirituality. The piece of wisdom I passed on was be kind because everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Yes. Love it. Mm. It's true. It is true. Every single person. You've heard that before? I have heard that before. Okay. And is it something you ascribe to? I do. I've been to rehab twice. And you can imagine when you get into a facility like that, there's like inspirational sayings and things everywhere. That one was like above the the desk as you walked in. So that was above the other ones. Yeah. So there were posters yeah. and then there was that yeah. one. Yeah. I also agree with it. When you start talking to people about their lives, everyone is up against something at some point and it always changes. And anytime I haven't been nice, I will step back and be like, wait a second, I have no idea what's going on in their life. Do you remember with great clarity incidents where you haven't been nice to someone? Yes. Particularly in our business, but also in my personal life. I've gotten better over the years where if that happens, you, I think, every, by the way, if you're not a sociopath, you at least recognize when you haven't handled something right or when it doesn't feel right. You rub someone the wrong way yeah, and or I've you hurt had someone. It, that's right. So I've had experiences where I either react the wrong way, I may say something like in the moment out of spite, um, or if I've done something that it like made me not just it made me not feel right. I've gotten really good at like recognizing that and being able to either quickly apologize or figure out a way to at least clarify and make sure they understand that the non-niceness was not about them. It was usually about me. Now, is that something you feel you learned to do or that's something that came naturally to you? I think I've learned to address it more so than I learned that like I was aware of it. Okay, so it's something was, you always I, recognized. I was always nervous, I think even as a kid, about not being nice or kind to people. I don't really know where I learned that from as much as it might have just been instilled in me or if I felt like an interaction wasn't right or I would never do something purposefully to like make someone feel bad or cheat them or steal those type of things that are just not good deeds. Right. But as I got older, I definitely learned how to address it because I wasn't always good at addressing it. If mm. I snapped someone's head off at work, I would never, like years ago, I would never go apologize or explain myself. Are you critical of yourself of not apologizing quickly enough? No, because now I want to make sure I understand what I'm apologizing for and why. Hmm. Okay, interesting. But we've, I, gotten, we've gotten very feel-good already Well, here. here's what I'll tell you. Yeah. And one of the things that taught me that was the 12-step program. Because the basis of that program, there's the fourth step is evaluating yourself. And the way they teach it over time is you're supposed to do that every day. So for a while, I would go home and be like, what did I do today that either felt good or didn't feel right? And did I wrong anyone? And wrongs can be small or big or whatever they are. And when you get in that habit of like evaluating your actions for the day, you get a lot more conscious about how you've handled stuff. Right. So you're just more sensitive to them the totally. next day and the next week totally. or whatever. So hit me with one of yours. What was one of your pieces of wisdom? Oh, I'm going to pull it up. I mean, are you ready for this? I have two. But my second one was, it's a quote by Breen Brown. Have you heard of her? No. She's like a 
she basically studies shame and vulnerability and the human experience. She's fascinating. She's given a few TED Talks that are amazing. Owning our story and loving ourselves through that process is the bravest thing that we will ever do. That's really nice. Mm-hmm. It's very vulnerable. Yeah. She studies vulnerability. She does. Yeah. She studied. Oh, how perceptive she started studying shame, which led her to a need for vulnerability in the world. It's so interesting we mentioned that word because... One of the reasons, uh, you know, I wanted you to get to get you in here for this is because I just thought you'd be a lot of fun to talk to, but also you're kind of an open book. If you're willing to read it. <laughs> that book's like hidden in the back. There's a special room totally. with a curtain for those you books. You have to have like a picture ID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a picture ID and a strong content. Totally. You know, you're kind of an open book and you seemingly, you tell people, I think, a lot about yourself. And what's interesting to me is how you always manage to sort of put yourself out there, not in anger, but in a kind of very honest way and usually with a large dose of self-deprecation. And humor. And humor. Because I actually think anything can be funny. Well, <laughs> so we found. But self, self-deprecation, self you know, is humor. That's right. Just, I just I want mean, to be clear on that. It. Do you know, every time I hear that word... A person I used to work with always used to say, oh, he's very self-depreciating. But oh, it's self, that's different. It's yeah. different. That's like you're losing value in front <laughs> totally, of someone. Totally. That doesn't make yeah. sense, actually. But I always, every time I say that word, I think of that. But anyway, back to you. I think you really sort of expose your vulnerability about yourself. And you almost revel in it sometimes. And that, to me, is kind of the self-deprecating part. The first thing I want to ask you is, how did you end up this way? I mean, why do you have that approach to your life um is something about your raised is it something that happened to you is it is it some kind of whacked out brain chemistry (laughs) it's it's probably a mixture of all i was actually thinking about this when you sent me a note just saying open bookness like why did why is that how i live there's a few kind of so you did the prep work well yeah i thought about it (laughs) on my walk to work as you asked me to do (laughs) here's the thing Overall, the reason that I feel like I share my life openly and and love when other people do the same is it just feels better. And it opens yourself, not to get too heady, but I really believe this, it opens yourself up to, to humanity in a totally different way. And two times, one time in my life, well, two times in my life where it has, it really like, it just released a sense of shame and secrecy and regret was coming out as gay. Yeah. Obviously I'm gay. I'm not going to hide that my whole life, but as a gay man, you grow up and in my experience in the South, you don't really know how to tell people that. Now you were raised in Atlanta or the South South? I was raised in Atlanta. Okay. So there, there is a the South. I know yeah. it's more and, and my parents were more progressive and my world was more progressive. Right. But I think even for people that grow up in New York city, the coming out process is difficult. Sure. So being gay took me a while to get comfortable with, and then sharing it just felt so much better. And then it allowed me to be able to talk to people about it. And when you start talking about yourself, the stuff you get back from people is about themselves and their life experiences. It changes the ballgame. Right, because you push so far out, if you will. That's right. Uh, you've been so honest that suddenly they that gives them a little permission That's right. to be more honest. Maybe not as much as you. Hopefully not. not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that the not. world needs too many people like me. No, that's uh, that's for certain. And then the other one was HIV. I was diagnosed with HIV and only told my family and my boyfriend for two years. I can't underestimate the damage of a secret. Whether you believe that that's personal or not, for me, not sharing that with anyone was detrimental to me. And did you not share it with anyone? I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell work. I didn't tell friends. I didn't. My family and my boyfriend at the time knew. And that was it. Was there a period where you kept it completely to yourself? Like not the family, not the boyfriend? Yes, for about six months. Six months? Yeah. And that, it's awful. And I decided to share mine in a, I guess a me way. The time, I didn't tell anyone. I just, I actually wrote an article for The Advocate and put it on my Facebook and they ran it and it went everywhere within a day. And that experience, them being able, and it was and it was so freeing. And the conversations I had with people after that, again, it changes the ball game. And I just realized I'm going to I'm gonna be totally me. I'm going to talk about myself when it comes up. I'm going to share my own stories, my experiences, not just related to being gay or HIV, but like life. And that has served me really well. And that was how long ago? That was in 2009. 2009. So that's, that's uh, nine years ago. 
That's right. And uh, thank you. My math yeah, is pretty you're, good. You're pretty Not good bad. at that for a communications planner. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Now, when you came out to your parents, I'm just interested. Were your parents kind of like, I mean, because I, some of my gay friends, they they talk about this experience. Many of not all of them, but many of them. They'll say, I came out to my parents and my parents were like, oh, yeah, no kidding. Well, <laughs> ready for some honesty? They had to know. Yeah. My stepmom walked in on me making out with a guy when I was 15. But you kind of, I was like, I'm not gay. I just like making out with people. <laughs> oh, okay. This Tyler. is a person? Totally. <laughs> they happen to be yeah, over the house? he was here. I just thought we'd make out. They knew, um, and I, like my dad and stepmom weren't shocked. My mom, I think, was wasn't shocked, but I think she was just more sad at the life I was going to be living because she was worried. I remember her saying, "I'm worried about loneliness. You're not finding anyone. I'm worried about you getting sick." Like very traditional things that a mom might be worried about a gay son. But they were never like, "I can't believe you're gay." That's not you choose. They were never in that realm. They were very supportive and understood that it was who I was but more fear out of what my life would be because of it. So she saw it as a very hard road ro to hoe. Is that the word? Road to hoe? No, road to <laughs> let me, <laughs> let me Let me move away from that analogy completely. I don't completely. know what that one was. She, she viewed that as a just a hard life Like choice. a burden life. A burden yeah. life, yeah. It, but by the way, all my friends were like, oh, thank God you told us. Why? Because I was so gay. And I also like never had a girlfriend. I... I had girl like I went to prom with girls, but right. I was gay. I liked men. Well, one one last question about the HIV. When you got that diagnosis, were you and without yeah, we don't need to get into the details why or why not this this is the case, but were you surprised by it? Yes. Um, as a gay man, you get tested. I mean, at the time I was a healthy gay man, you get tested every three months, no matter what, is what I was told. So I did, and it was just a regular. I'd been doing that for years. And I had not been engaging in what I considered really risky behavior. And so I got a call. I was working here. And they said, we need you to come in. And I, at the time, I either thought cancer or HIV. And I went up there and they told me and I was just shocked. Absolutely. Absolutely shocked. I couldn't move. It felt like I literally thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I had to come back to work and go to a meeting. And it... At the time, it felt like a part of me had died. So you actually came back to work. I came back to work. I went to a meeting. We had a huge client meeting. And I remember the long car ride. It was down to like Pennsylvania. And all I could think about was how am I ever going to date again? Am I going to live? What is the medication like? I don't know what this means. Do I tell anybody? It was really, 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 really sad day. Oh, and also, how could I let this happen? I kept thinking, you're so stupid. So you you're felt growing like I, up in a time where like you have all of this information at your disposal, and then you let this happen. And you felt you had been reckless or irresponsible in some way. Yes. And the first person you told who was your parents? You, okay. I told my best friend first. What was that person's reaction? His was like, you're going to be fine. This, he's a gay man. Yeah. I've dated people with HIV. This isn't that big a deal. You're going to be fine. And it my, that just juxtapositioned to my emotions was like, I didn't really know how to compute that. But he did that without being blasé about it either. It, it was like. a very meaningful conversation. Right. But you, it was hard for me to accept that. Because like, I, I had you'd be fine. Yeah. It wasn't that at all. And I didn't know, by the way, I didn't know anyone in my age realm that I hung out with that had HIV. That was living with it. Correct. Yeah. When I shared my story about having HIV, more people than I ever could imagine have HIV. So people, it, so that surprised you. Shocked I mean, me. It, it surprises me because you'd think people would be a little bit. At the time, there were people working at our company that had HIV, and it never told us all. Did that embolden them? Just you doing it embolden them to share their story with other people? Well, I don't family, whatever. Maybe I don't know. You don't know. I know that it for uh, not maybe people here, but I know for some other people, it did inspire them to be more public about it. I at the time, I still feel this way. Listen, it's a disease that you have. It can be very shameful. There's a lot of um, stigma around it still. There's a lot of fear around it still. So how you choose to deal with that is really up to you, and I don't place judgment on that. For me, it was literally telling anyone who would listen and, and talk about it. I wrote about it for a while for a few magazines. I spoke to schools about it because I just felt like someone had to – there were tons of people that come before me that talked about it, and there's tons of people after me that talk about it that are far more famous. The more people that talk about it, the better. So what I think it just at least inspired people to do was share with someone else that they cared about 
Um, and when people shared back with me that they had it, it really helped. Like there were people that I didn't know or didn't expect. And just knowing that other, that someone else is going through the same thing as you really like frees up your mind and, and, and body to just like relax a little bit. Mm. It's an interesting point you make, because I guess as someone living with HIV, who do you trust personally about things related to that? Because I guess one of the issues is in today's world, information on the internet, it's so available, but the fact that the opposite advice or the wrong information is just a click away or, you know, scroll down the page away. So who, who do you trust? When it comes to medical stuff, yeah. only my doctor. And period. I actually, period. period. I have a doctor I really trust. So with my, with HIV, which you take a pill for, and we're very fortunate in that, I really just trust him because he, I chose him for that reason. When it comes to points of view about HIV and AIDS, advocacy about HIV and AIDS, the way it's impacting the world, there are a few activists that I really respect and recommend. Peter Staley is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, Larry Kramer. There's some really, really- The, play, the playwright. Yes. There's some really um, influential people that have lived this and fought for it and are in the trenches on it that I trust their perspective on it. Um, but really, when it comes to medical stuff, I think it's crazy if people are only looking online and are not their own health advocate to like fight for a doctor that can give them great advice. Living with it today versus when you were first diagnosed, just if you could kind of quickly talk about how that's changed in terms of nine years ago when you were first diagnosed, in terms of medication, lifestyle, nutrition, et cetera, versus now. Like how has it become less complicated? Totally. And it's why like, is that? It's crazy too when you think about it. So I was actually diagnosed in 2007, came out in 2009 with it. So it's been a little, it's been over 10 years that I've lived with it. And I thought at the time, how fortunate am I? Because just 10 years before that, people were dying. So medication has advanced leaps and bounds. They've just recently in the past couple of years, there's a treatment that that gay men or whoever has sex regularly without a monogamous partner can take and their chances of being of getting transmitted HIV is zero. Zero. It's called PrEP. Huge. So it's like a vaccine? It's a pill. You it's, take it every day. No, but is it a vaccine technically? No. No. Because you not. can't because if you don't take the pill, you could get it. Okay. Got it. But it's huge because the World Health Organization actually advises every gay man who is sexually active and not in a monogamous to relationship take, take it. It could actually eradicate transmissions. It's insane. That's huge because it takes the shame away from sex, takes the fear away from the disease. It, I, th I think if more people get uh, educated on it and aware of it, it will change the way in which people talk about their illness. There's still people out there that don't share that they have HIV before they have sex with mm -hmm. people because they're scared of rejection and all the very human emotions that go with that. Um, and then if you could make that drug available worldwide, it could really change the face of HIV and AIDS, which is still an epidemic around the world. You're a recovering addict, and I, I guess, and the the addiction came where in relation to the HIV diagnosis? After I was diagnosed with HIV, yeah. You're entering into the world of drugs. I, I seem to recall you telling me, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you were like very straight-laced. Oh my gosh. So through college, I didn't start drinking until I was 24. I'd never drank, never smoked. Like never had a sip? No. Like, I never drank. Like never, never even had a sip? Nope. Never you, did. New Year's can't. Eve, I would have like sparkling cider. And why were you like that? Um, I think partly because of the environment I grew up in. Not that it was crazy, but there was a lot of drinking around. And I kind of was like, I don't know that I want that in my life. And I also did not like being in control. And I sometimes... Being out of control. Out of control. Right. Love being in control. <laughs> I hate being in control. <clears throat> As it goes topless. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so I, that, that was a thing. And I, as I got a little older and realized I was definitely gay, and by older I mean like 15, 16, I was nervous about getting drunk and telling people. Oh, wow. So the, those kind of three things kept me from drinking. I could see that with your personality, how you'd be worried about that. the minute I have a drink, right. I'll like, tell you that, Yeah, I'm already telling everyone everything. <laughs> Next thing you know. I drink, my God. I'm like making out with my best friend. He's like, I'm not into this. Um <laughs> So I just, I didn't until I was 24. And then I decided, you know what? I'm being, maybe I want to try drinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was weird to have never done it. 
not even through college. And I started drinking and everything was fine for a, like, I didn't, we didn't have a problem at the time. Um, so this is pre HIV. Correct. Okay. Moved to New York. I recreationally used drugs. Like I think a lot of people did. I had a big aversion to it. It made me uncomfortable. I felt like that really made people out of control. Um, like what kind of drugs? Like, see, he used a plural. Cocaine, marijuana. I did ecstasy occasionally, but it was never a regular thing. Mm -hmm. It would, if I was at a party or someone had it, and it was New York. That's what I kept telling myself. Yeah. It's New York. It's New That's York. what it's people like do. Andy Warhol, Soho, That's the whole right. nine yards. And I ne it was never a problem. Um, I didn't definitely didn't want to do that long term, and I always watched my drinking. Um, I mean, I say that, and then a picture of me with like literally my clothes off at this company Christmas party pops up, and I'm like, did I have a problem? I don't know. That was, That is something people look forward to each That's year, right. by That's the way. Right. Although yeah. you haven't done it the past two years. No, because I am in control now. Mm, okay. I am a mature man. I see. I understand. Um, and then I got diagnosed with HIV, and I... You know, that's not the only reason. There were a lot of reasons behind my use, I think, that went before that, of course. But it was one of those traumatic events for me that I often described it as I felt like a part of me died. And I was grasping at straws to feel better and get through the day. And and this was a straw. And crystal meth was introduced into my life in an unexpected way. And the moment I did it, everything felt okay. And did you smoke it? I smoked it and I snorted it. Snorted it. I never injected it. What kind of people were you hanging out with this time? So in other words, was crystal meth introduced with just sort of within the, the normal no. course of people you come no. encounter with? Or and suddenly- if, if it is in your normal perimeter, <laughs> like change your norms. Run. <laughs> no. Here's what was even crazier about it is that I had a great life. I have still have a great group of friends, really positive people successful moral people I think that I've surrounded myself with and like my community I had a great work environment was doing really well at work this was a totally separate life no one knew so how did you how did you get involved with that universe of people was something because I, I don't imagine you suddenly go out and say oh I'm gonna I'm gonna go from universe of people a to sort of peer group a to peer group B what was that transition well I'll tell you um you ready to get real yeah particularly in the gay world, how it's usually introduced is through a hookup. So I'm going to go hook up with someone that I met online. They may have drugs. I don't know. And this was one of those instances. And I thought it was cocaine and it wasn't. It was crystal meth. And when I did it, I thought, how do I get more of that? Because it was instant. It was like instant. Bam. And over time, you end up searching for those people. And my goal- Who was, have that stuff. Who have that drug. And then my goal was I need to get dealers because I- I got to figure out a way to get this myself so I don't have to go through these people. It's really crazy the way once you're in an addiction, it starts. And before I knew it, by the way, from the moment I tried it to five months in, I was using every day. Every day. Every day. For four years. There was a few periods where I kept saying, okay, this is the time you're going to kick it. I would not buy any more and I would try to get off of it and I physically and mentally couldn't do it. And it was... It wasn't until I, I remember it, I came to work one day, I was in, my American Express card had a ridiculous amount of debt on it because you could buy drugs on your credit card. Um, really? Yeah. People, it was when they had just introduced like Square and PayPal and whatever. And how did that appear on your credit card statement? It's like what did it say? John or like Doug's wow. Supplies. So sort Weird of innocuous. Stuff. Yeah. Innocuous. Yeah. And I got to the office and I was exhausted. I had, you know, on that drug, you don't sleep, you're a mess. And I had kept it together for three years. But that fourth year, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I don't know what possessed me, but I came in my office. I called one of my best friends, Adam. And the minute he answered, I said, I have to tell you something. I'm addicted to crystal meth and I have no idea what to do. And he was like, um, <laughs> okay. Did he help you? He did. Or he, he helped you as best he could anyway? He did. He helped me. By the way, from that point, it took me another year to get completely sober and get into get in and out of rehab a few times. The thing that sort of fascinates me is, were you leading sort of, you were leading sort of two lives? Not Those, sort of. It was totally separate But didn't lives. they, didn't they intersect at some points? Like, was there weirdness where suddenly 
both of them came together and yes this is a good you're good at this i remember being at a party <laughs> yeah that was a very normal actually industry party with a friend of mine and i turned around and there was one of my drug dealers right there right there and did he recognize and found you? out yes i had spent tons of money with him i'd seen him like two days before he was one of the credit card people totally <laughs> he's like give me your amex that was doug's supply and i thought oh my gosh and then i realized like how I remember in that moment thinking, gosh, this is so crazy. I'm living this one life with all these, not all these people, but there were people. Yeah. And then my normal life. People in my life knew something was wrong after a couple of years. Like I was definitely, I looked different. I was always late. Small things that like. Less predictable. Less predictable. I less would, dependable. You, yes. I would go, I would say I would go out to Fire Island with my friends and then all of a sudden I would have a panic attack because I didn't have drugs and I would be like, I got to go and I'd make up some excuse and leave. Stuff like that. Behavior like that that just wasn't me and wasn't normal. And you had a heart attack during this time? Or was that post? That was post. Post. Okay. I went. I went to rehab once for 30 days, got out and I relapsed and had a heart attack. And how many times have you relapsed? Just that one. Good yeah. for you. Yeah. Wow. You, uh, I got to say, I, I got to hand it to you. Your, your openness about it is pretty amazing. I mean, you, you post, every once in a while you post those things on Facebook. You've yeah. got some kind of app on your phone that says, I've been sober, yeah. you know, whatever, years and This one was a tough one to be open about. I'll tell you why. Here's what, yeah. I find this more both... so More so than the uh, HIV. Yes. Why? I was ashamed at myself for getting HIV, but I was not ashamed about HIV. Like, it's something I had and I felt good talking about it and I felt like, more people need to talk about it, and I was learning stuff about it. It was less about your character? I think so, right? With drugs, here's what's also interesting. People can go away to rehab for alcohol, and some people may say cocaine, and that you hear that a little more often, right? When you talk about being sober and then someone says, oh, well, what was it? And you say crystal meth. <laughs> yeah. You watch something go over their face like, what the? They just, it's, it's a weird drug to bring up, and it, is there, there a, is there a class thing to that? Like I don't know. I think people associate that drug with like maybe like Breaking Bad, but not even that. Even like trailer parks mm. and you know no teeth, bad like the traditional things you see, which do happen. But right. it's also my thing about it is it's an epidemic. I think in the gay community, but also you know I found out once I got sober. I have cousins in Georgia that had struggled with that drug. I've had other friends that have had family members struggle with that drug. It's a extremely addictive and dangerous drug. And once it takes hold of you, it's rough. Like, did you have a favorite brand? Well, I didn't know the brands. Here's how you deal with brands with drugs. Yeah. By the way, if Val listens to this, she's going to be like, what the? <laughs> but here's the, here's the brands of drugs. It was usually based on dealers because you would find out that dealer had a particular supply, right? And so you would go to them if it was stronger or, it, you know, if I if something like, literally, I remember one time being like, that one upset my stomach. Well, maybe no, it's because you were using crystal meth and not eating. Your right, stomach was right, like, yeah. Yeah. But that's how you dealt with it. Not like marijuana where there are like particular the brands. brands right. And uh, what was the brand of Breaking Bad? It was blue. Blue meth. Yeah. Blue meth. Was By it, the way, during. The blue. Didn't they just call it the blue? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't watch that show till I got out of rehab, which was a weird choice. But I remember people dyeing meth. Like you would get, like there were there were people that would make it and dye it certain colors, oh. so they could start trying to like own their brand. I remember one time thinking, "That's so smart advertising." Lens. Yeah, a nice future. That's <laughs> so beautiful. Dumb. <laughs> so dumb. Uh, so what do you do today to help manage your addiction? Like, what are the like daily or weekly things you do? Does you go to do you go to meetings or? Well, so my I'm are now, you not a meeting person or are you? No, I was for a long time. Okay. I was sober, completely sober, so no alcohol or drugs for five and a half years. Rehab really laid the foundation. The last time I went, I was there for three and a half months, which is a long period of time. And then I said, in that moment, I said, I will do anything to stay off drugs and rebuild the relationships of people that I had ruined. And so I did everything. I enrolled in a drug testing program for two years where I was randomly drug tested. I remember you going to that, yeah. yeah. I went to meetings every day in the beginning for the first year, twice a day. I was in therapy twice a week for a year and then still go to therapy now. Um, and the meetings were huge. The meeting other sober people was a really big deal. And I just, it, it became a non-negotiable. For me, it was a tool to stay healthy. And I actually got kind of over it. Like I just... I just kind of didn't want to go anymore, but I, I still, I will still go to Crystal Meth Anonymous meetings occasionally to check in. Um, but when I decided to try drinking again, I quit going to AA because it's not really it doesn't but, line up. But you never had a, a drinking problem per se. No, but I was worried I might have. Might have, right? Because you, you can't figure it out. And what I also remembered is drinking. I once I started using drugs. By the way, I never drank. Where a lot of people, drinking will actually lead to them using that drug. 
of whatever their choice is. Like I know a lot of people that were addicted to cocaine that they can't drink because that will lead to cocaine again. And I totally get that. So I was really nervous. If I start drinking, is it going to lead to crystal meth? And so I took that very seriously and talked with my therapist and I talked to my husband and I talked to my family to make sure that they knew what I was doing and I wasn't hiding anything. And if it ever became a problem, I needed to stop. And it hasn't been a problem. Was it scary to start the wine? Like when you're an addict, it doesn't just affect you. You are you're affecting your family, your, the your people coworkers. That you work. I felt this sense of obligation to people that really cared about me. And I say that because I like so example Val, who's our CEO here, she took a um a really big personal which she does for a lot of people, not just me. Yeah, Invest, I've noticed that. Investment yeah. and care in that process. I will talk about that forever because if every CEO or manager took her approach to stuff like that, firm, but caring, and when she sees and believes in someone, she's going to help them out and make sure that they have a place to come back to, et cetera. I felt an obligation to her. Like I didn't want to drink and, and screw all that up. The same with my family or my friends. Like they put trust in me to keep it together. So I was nervous about that part too. It's interesting, your relationship with Val, because I've noticed it. Uh, and I think as other people who work here have, I've noticed that sort of almost maternalistic thing she's kind of got yeah. with you. And, and your sense of uh, loyalty and commitment to her. And I just sense that's because of a lot of this stuff we're talking about here. But it's interesting you talk about, uh, I've, so I, I've definitely sensed the caring part. But the firm part, I've never seen that part, but you have. Yeah. So when I needed to go to rehab the second time, I came, I actually, she emailed, I was having some issues. Like, I, like they knew something was wrong. She emailed me the night before. What did the header say? You were having some issues? <laughs> no. Hey, are you around? So and a little I, bit. And I emailed her back and said, yes, can you meet in the morning first thing? She came in early. I think it was a Wednesday. I went straight to her office. And before I could talk, she said, before you share, I'm going to share something personal to me so that you understand. And she, she shared a very personal story that was going on in her life. And she says, you need to get help. And that's going to happen today. Wow. Today. And, yeah. Like right now. And she had, she had heard from my parents. She had heard from a friend of mine. And that's what I mean by firm. Like it, there was no, by the way, she did it in the most caring way. Cause she had just shared a deeply personal story Yeah, that there was no way I wasn't going to do what she said after that. And then she said what the next step was. And it was done in such a caring way that she's amazing. I think everyone just has to know she's really amazing. Yeah. And she, I've watched her do it with other people as well. And it's it to me, it's how more people should live and lead. So it was a bit of an intervention, but with a gang of one, a yeah. gang of Val. Yeah. Well, I wasn't listening to anyone else. Yeah. You wouldn't have. I don't think so. Yeah, really? You don't think so? Well, I had one friend at the time who I did trust, but I w he was calling me. This went on for like a week and a half and that last kind of go at it. And I would just start screaming at him and hang up. Well, that wasn't helpful. And I think I think I had a sense of responsibility to my career and to Val and to Deutsch that just clicked. It clicked yeah. at the right moment. Yeah. I also wanted help. Yeah. I was really tired. And they and they offered that hand and Val offered that. Yeah. Reached out. And they, you know, my parents and my friend had already organized I was going to get on a plane and go. And yeah. so I left. So you just had to day. like follow the instructions at yeah. that point. Went away. Well, I'm glad you did. Me too. We kind of got through the really heavy stuff. Wow. Although I wish you would have been here when I was an addict. I think you would have had a little fun with that. Oh, I don't know. You know, my, now my wife, Marianne, is a former substance abuse counselor. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, and she's, you know, she's had some stories. So yeah. that's something I know a little bit about. But one of the interesting things was when I uh, when I first met her, she turned to me and said, you know, your friend over there, you know, John. Her, she said, John, you know, he's a he's an alcoholic. And I'd be like, oh, no, 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 John. He just likes to have a good time. He's fun. He's sociable, blah, blah. And then like six months later, John would be an AA. That's right. So she would, she would right. pick him out like one at a time. It was unbelievable. You know, sharing, speaking about sharing, when I got more open about my addiction, I, well, I'll talk about it with anyone, clients, I don't. I, I care. I don't want to say I don't care, but I have no issue talking about it. And I will freely share it up. The amount of people that struggle with substance abuse or addiction and the amount of people that has impacted their lives is staggering. I have not met. I have had clients that have called me and said that they have a problem. I've had. Either with themselves or with family. Correct. Or whatever. I had a client that actually went away to rehab. 
I've had people at work at the time that got sober while they were working. It is staggering what substance can do to to people. It's really crazy. My own relationship with alcohol is, I mean, I've got sort of, I guess, a normal relationship with it, but... As you take a sip. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> What's in that? What's in that ceramic mug exactly? The only reason you use a substance is to feel different, by the way, or you would drink water. Right. Do you, you know what I mean? water all the time. And, or milk. And I, I got... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Although milk might get you a little bloated. But. Totally. One, two, three. So anyway, let's let's talk about our last topic. But here's my third piece of advice. You okay. want to hear this one? My yeah. third piece of wisdom. It actually is from someone I really trust, whose opinion I really trust. And here's what it said. It said, there's nothing more beautiful than someone who makes life beautiful for others. That's so That's so moving. Isn't that lovely? You know what? By the way, what's surprising to me is I think of you as like a kind and caring person. But I, when I imagine you going through your Instagram, I don't imagine you stopping on that one and being like, oh, this really speaks to me. Given the cynical nature of my own post. Do you know, there's two things. Particularly I, your love for the onion. I just, I don't see there's, you. Yes, exactly. There's. Well, that was my other piece of wisdom to Joanne's daughter. I thought that was a pretty good one. Yeah, yours were really good. I think she's going to have one hell of a book on her hands. I think, yeah, yeah. I know. it Because here, everybody's so touchy-feely. Totally. Oh, my God. So I wanted to talk to you about, you recently got married. I you did. and your partner, Blake, got married. I did. Back in the fall, right? October 14th. October 14th. Coming up on a year. Wow. What's a year? Paper? Barely hanging on. What's the, is it paper? Oh, I don't know. Should I look that up? If it's, it's paper, look. I'm going to change it. I don't a, want anything It's paper. nice. You just get a card. It's yeah, I want easy. something more than a card. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking th about myself. Oh, sorry. <laughs> See, I always think about the work you got to put into it. But like someone gives me something like whatever. I wish the first year was like beach house. Or oh, like I know. <laughs> <laughs> Trip around the world. Yeah. First year. Uh, maybe this question comes from me knowing a little bit too much about you. And I'll admit that. I, I want to ask you a question, but I want you to insulate it. Oh, I want you to insulate your answer from the whole issue of gay marriage. Okay. But did you ever think that you, as a human being, would ever be married? No. 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 And when it happened, when I got proposed, Blake proposed to me. Okay. You didn't, Although, did you talk about it beforehand? Yeah, the only thing we talked about was I will not propose. Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> you weren't doing the heavy lifting. I just felt like if you made a rule like that, it would just be easier for me. I'm not going to propose. I'm, I'm never, not going to get your paper. I will not propose and TBD if I'll say yes or no. <laughs> When he proposed, I actually called my parents. We called our parents, whatever. And I said, I never thought this was a possibility. And not because of the gay marriage thing. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Just you as a person. Yeah. Because honestly, as much as I talk about my life and as much as I have reached like acceptance and, and a bit of pride in who I am and what I've been through, I'm a gay man who got HIV and is a former crystal meth addict who made some really tough decisions. Like, decisions in his life and i just thought maybe that's not in my <laughs> not exactly the pick of the litter <laughs> like really like it's not like when you rank me i'm like on paper i look scary yeah but on the flip side of that you know like i do deserve it and i am a great person but i just never thought it was going to work out that way also like i never envisioned a family and like all the things in the traditional sense so i honestly it wasn't a thing for me maybe in the past year when more of my friends were getting married and i saw kind of a shift in our community as far as that long-term life with someone, which wasn't always the case, you know, early on in the, the gay movement, but I just never thought it would, it would come to me. Was it? And uh, it was more about me, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Well, it, it, it always is about you. Yeah, totally. Even when it's about me, yeah. it's about you. And I found someone who likes that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I, I, did you ever envision yourself as someone who could, A, make the commitment to another person, but also B... I mean, I look at our lives. I look at uh, Mary, the life of Marianne, my wife and I, Marianne together. And I think that there's commitment there, but there's also, it's almost like this little company because there's- Yeah, it's like a unit. It's like this unit. And suddenly you've got two sets of parents. You've got two sets of families, two sets of friends, and you're coordinating all this stuff and you got logistics. And the, you got the merging of lives should not be underestimated. No. It's a big task. I actually thought if I met the right person, and for me, the right person had to do, I, w I wouldn't say just because of their family, but I wanted a, an environment that I also felt good about. Um, so I, that was part of dating Blake, was also getting to know his family and actually made him more appealing to me. 
because I felt his the extended stuff that came with Blake was representative of who he was as well. And so I enjoyed that. It's a lot, though. And in, for someone like me who's kind of, I think, a little more independent and has lived alone for so many All years, right. and I wondered about that part. But it's been it's been relatively easy. Now, is Blake as open as you are? No. Not in a bad way. But no, I don't I just think... want to, because you're like, you're like a 10. Like if you're, a, well, I don't know if you are a 10, but if, if you are. I'm a 10, all right. If, yeah. if you are. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the worst uh, thing to say, actually. But where do I stand on the openness scale, by the way? I'm wondering. Like um, compared to you. I would say around a six or a seven. Oh, okay. You want to know why? I, I'm going to tell you this when you were asking about the power of sharing story or being open. When you shared, I hope I can say this, but when you were, we were talking in the car, we were on our way to the airport, just about the experience of taking care of your father. Right. That was incredibly open if you really listened to it. And it got me like thinking. And by the way, it inspired me to call my dad and talk to him about him taking care of my grandmother. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. I yeah. found it and I was like moved by the story. It also like educated by it. It was also funny. Like you had some, it was a real like deep life thing. Yeah. You have to. I don't want to sound glib about it, but at times you do have to laugh about this. You stuff have to, it's totally. So, and sometimes you're knee-deep you're knee in shit. And I mean literally shit. Yeah. Listen, you know? if I can laugh about almost dying from a heart attack on Crystal Bay, Yeah, right. You can laugh at anything. <laughs> we can laugh at anything. <laughs> Anything's laugh funny. At anything. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole the whole parental care thing, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's it sort of changed my perspective about things in that it's, it's, it's a very, with my dad and my mom who passed away a couple of years ago, it's a very sort of hyper- intense version of sort of love the one you yeah, with, you know what I yeah. mean? Because you just want to be, you don't have that many moments with them. You know, they nap all the time, so they're right. not even awake that right. much. So you just want to kind of make them happy in that moment. Totally. Too, you know, just in that little window. Uh, and whether that window is the that moment or in, in a bigger sense, you know, the last years of their lives, it's, you know, I don't know. Anyway, what are you hopeful for? As you look toward the future, like, oh, things, like gosh, what are you? I don't know. I get so nervous. What's What are you, what are you getting nervous about? Well, so about. here's the thing about marriage. You don't have to be nervous. I'm, not, you just I'm just a nervous person. Day. You just take it day by day. Okay. I will. <laughs> <laughs> there's, some, there's some good advice. Just take it day by day. Just. I am excited. Um, it's weird to be, when you actually do it, for me, I was like, oh, we're like in this now. Yeah. You made a commitment. I mean, we could get signed divorced, a, whatever, but like we're signed in some it. papers. Yeah. I think the idea of having a family and we want to adopt children is really exciting and something that wasn't in my purview either. And that's like a whole life event of just stuff that I think is amazing. And so you scary. didn't think about that stuff till you met Blake? I thought about whether I wanted kids or not, and it wasn't a priority of mine till I met Blake. But the kids, so you're thinking about yeah, adopting. Yeah. Do you think I'll be a good dad? You know, I think you will be a good dad. Oh. So, Tyler, yeah. to wrap things up here, you've had such a complex and interesting background compared to most people. But at the same time, it's like incredibly human and hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I'm really touched when you talk about this stuff. Oh, I, thank I, you. I really mean yeah. it. I, I kind of go, there's it's moments. I feel a sense, for the first time in a long time, like I, I have that same thing. I realized at my wedding, the sense of like hope. Like my, my journey always didn't feel hopeful. It didn't. No. It took me a while to get to the hope side of it. So, you know, as I see you here working it's sort of in, in our everyday interactions and perhaps especially in your interactions with others, you know, I often think to myself, you know, here's a guy, he's pretty well organized, he's very direct, he doesn't waste people's time for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you aren't very calm. I'm not going to say you're like this Buddha-like no, figure. That's not me. That's not you. So, but it, it makes me curious. Your background, your life experience, you know, the HIV, the addiction, being a gay man, facing what you had to face with all that, and probably still face with all that, you know, how does that inform how you kind of go about your work? The biggest thing is it has made me so empathetic. And what I mean by that is when I'm talking to people, when I'm managing people, with clients, you know, I have a, if I have a crazy client, I immediately don't go to that person's crazy. I hate them to like, something's going on in their life. Like how can I, that whole conversation we were having earlier about just being more, I've had, I've had people that work for me come with really serious situations. I don't know that I would have gotten it if I hadn't been through what I've been through. Mm. So that's one thing. 
Um, it's also made me a lot more focused. And I think that's where the time really being respectful of people's time, getting stuff done and moving on. Um, when you've had these serious life things, you yeah. just get, for me, it manifested to being a lot more focused in what I was doing that day, what my intentions are, what we need to do and, and move on. This, this may sound odd, but you strike me as someone who's actually respectful of your own time. Yes. And I don't mean that in a selfish way, but it's just obvious that you've got priorities for yourself and you don't confuse those with things at work and no, nor do you. It made me more balanced. I, um, like I said, there were tons of things in, in, that were a part of my addiction. Some we've talked about others. One thing that happened during it, I became a workaholic. I worked 20, during the addiction. Yes. I worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Maybe part of that was like, I was always trying to catch up, but I worked really hard and I, part of it, I actually did pretty well. But when I got to the end of all that, I was like, what am I doing? Like, you're not, ta I was not taking any care of myself, right. addiction aside. Um, and when I got back, I slow, I like eased myself back into life. Um, and it really rebalanced everything. Like, I'm not going to miss um, unless there's extreme situations, a family function, or if Blake has something really important to him, that's going to come first probably to, yeah. you know, I'm going to try to move things around. It doesn't mean I don't care about my job or I don't want to succeed or I don't have ambition, but I definitely have balanced it out. Does self-care help you in a strange way care more about work? Yeah. Yeah. And also like you spend a lot of your time here. So how do I be focused and use that in the best way possible? Well, all right. Well, listen, I want to thank you for thank you. taking the time. Has it been all right? Has it been fun? This is fun. Yeah. Like you should start a, this should be an ongoing series. Maybe we can check in with me in a few, <laughs> in a few months to see like what's up in Tyler's life. You know, yeah. you could have a whole segment just on It'll me. It'll be like, yeah, we're going to revisit the Tyler Holmes yeah, story. Yeah. Where is he at now? I think every third week would be about the right amount. Totally. Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that happens. <laughs> all right. Listen, thanks, man. Appreciate okay. Thank it. you. Bye-bye. Digging Into Deutsch is written, produced, and edited by me, Matthew George, with additional editing and mixing by Daniela Morrison and Vonda Lepage. Additional technical assistance from Trip McCune, Evelyn Martinez, and Jeff Morgan. Also, thanks to Chris Catone, Rondel Meeks, Val DeFebo, and especially my old pal Barbara Chandler for their concept and editorial inputs. Thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll just keep on digging. So you're actually the source, ground zero, if you will, of one of my all-time favorite work stories. Do you know what I'm going to say here? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about this story, though, is it is a practical joke that wasn't intended to be a practical joke. And that's, that's right. what's really funny about that's it. That's right. Because it's sort of an unintended practical joke. That's right. Yeah. So I thought we could just talk about that just a little bit. It was because I think it gives people it's a window. Of, it's like one of my life moments. Really, it's that important. Like to it you was too. just so everything about it came together just so unexpectedly and funny. I still like I almost start crying laughing when I think about it. You know, and, and I it is it's one of my go to work stories. Like when people, like you know, you're you're at a dinner party or something, and and you just are with people, and you you just want to sort of show what a crazy world advertising yeah. is. That is like that's one of them. There's that's like right. three or four of them, but that's one of them. I'm glad I could supply it. Yeah. So the, the background is, um, and I'm not. I'm assuming this is a smart idea to tell this story. It may not be. Any story is appropriate to tell. <laughs> True. We actually talked about this already. Um, but I was. I had just started here. I've been here only a few months. That's right. And we had pitched um, a piece of business. We pitched Lenovo, which ended up not getting. Um, but anyway, we're waiting to hear on the on the pitch, and I had gone out to lunch, and I come back to my office and there's a little sticky note on my phone which says something 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 love val and there's a heart yeah. it says heart val yeah and i think it says and we're waiting here on the pitch so everybody's real anxious and i thought it said something like success like that's how i <laughs> but i wasn't quite sure what it said you know yeah so i pick up the sticky note and I walk down to Val's office, and I walk in, and Val's sitting at her desk, and I say, listen, thank you for the note, but I really can't read it. I just can't read it. So I hand her the sticky note. That's right. And she looks at it. Like, she doesn't really react like, oh, I didn't leave you a note. Yeah. She just, like, takes it from me, and she's got her reading glasses on, so she's kind of looking down her nose, and she goes, this says suck it, love Val. <laughs> 
and I said, uh, <laughs> and I am like, it was. Like I, I remember was, like where I was as you were doing this. But did you know I had done it? So here's the thing. Did, I know, did you know I had actually gone down to her office? Yes, here's why. Not during, actually during the time I was doing it. Yes. Okay. I had gone to lunch and thought, oh, Matthew George is there. You'd been here a few months. You were funny. So I wrote a note, suck it, love Val, right. and put it on like your desk or computer. Yeah. Then I go out with a girl, Jen Novick, who right. worked with us. She comes back in. And the funny thing was, is Jen goes, you can't leave that. What if he thinks it's Val? He doesn't know anybody. And I go, he's never going to think it's Val. <laughs> There's no way. So I go down. I go across to get lunch. She goes back upstairs. She texts me. He got the note, and he's going to Val's office. And I thought she was joking. Right. So I come back in. Because that's the kind of things you joke about, we had just those, to get you crazy. That's right. We had those long hallways. Right. And I, like, peek around and see you walking into her office. You actually saw me go yeah. in. Oh, I didn't know this And part. I was dying. Oh, my God. Dying. Like, were you, were you laughing, or were you just petrified? Or both? Both. Okay. Because, well, I knew Val would maybe get it. but then You're I, one of the few people that would be both, by the way. That's right. I knew that Val would, like, get it. But then I thought, what if, why is she thinking she think I leave these random notes on people's desk all the time? And then I was like, why is he going in there? And then I was like, she's definitely going to be able to understand it. The whole thing in my mind was muddy. But it was, by the way, I was sta- I hid behind a column. Oh, laughing wow. so hard. I didn't know I could not pull myself together. Yeah. And my reaction, I, I the thing I remember, I don't remember much. It all became very blurry after that. <laughs> but I do remember I felt like my feet were bolted to the floor because I was, I just found myself like, first of all, I was stunned. And the minute she said, this says, suck it, Laval, suddenly that's what I saw too. And it was so obvious that that what was what was written there. My handwriting wasn't that bad. Well, it just... It wasn't quite clear. Yeah, it wasn't clear. But all of a sudden, it was 100% clear. And so I find myself suddenly oh, like kind of over-explaining what... First of all, I started sweating. <laughs> but I couldn't... Like, I just start over-explaining the whole thing. And I said, oh, you know, we're waiting here on this new business thing. And I start rationalizing it. Like, we're waiting here. And I'm sure I thought it was just a note you wrote. And I was so happy that we got in the business. And I came in. And... I think she said this to me, and I don't remember whether she said it or maybe you said it afterwards, but I thought she said to me, plus I would never put a little heart on a note. She did say that. She did say that. Yeah. Okay. I, though, what got me laughing so hard was envisioning someone new at a company going into the CEO's office with a note that says, (laughs) suck it, and asking her to translate it. <laughs> that to me still is just the funniest moment. I know, for me. and you can't make us upset. And did you go and apologize to her afterwards? Did you like re I sent her a note saying yeah. the note was for me. I was being silly. And then she didn't respond that night. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, she's actually mad. Right. So the next day I go in and she was laughing. Oh, God. So she took it in good humor. Yeah, I do That's remember right. that. Oh, God. That, but anyway, that is just an all time, one of the all time classic. But it, like I, I have say, never the, left a note like that ever again. A little audio asterisk here. The views presented in this podcast are those of the individuals recorded on the interview and not those of Deutsch Inc. So, now you know that.